Welcome to Living Through the Word, the new podcast ministry of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. Here we'll bring in different guests from across the diocese and Anglicanism worldwide to discuss topics that matter to your ministry and life today. I'm Julian Dobbs, the Bishop of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, and today it's my great pleasure to introduce as our very first inaugural guest, Bishop Martin Mins. Bishop, great to have you with us. Uh, Good morning, Julian. Great to be with you. Thank you for your time. Tell us, you have a fantastic testimony about coming to Jesus that um, involves uh, listening through the wall to someone singing their hymns. Can you can you briefly tell us that story? Obviously, you've been listening to my testimony to remember that detail. I grew up in England, in uh, the Midlands, in Nottingham. And uh, in those days, it was a fairly um, gritty kind of town, very industrial, very much involved in the coal business. And we lived in what today are called row houses or townhouses uh, with a very thin dividing wall from our neighbors. And my bedroom was next to the chimney stack, which provided the only source of heating in the house from a living room fireplace. And so I would try to stay close to that chimney stack since it was warm. And my next door neighbor, a dear maiden lady, we used to call all such ladies Auntie, Auntie Maud, Uh, would say her prayers if she cleared out the ashes from her own fireplace. And so I would get the opportunity to listen in to her prayers uh, most mornings as she prepared for the day. And uh, her trust in Jesus and her relationship with Jesus was attractive to me. I was a little boy uh, in a Baptist church and uh, where accepting Christ uh, was very much part of the culture. And so I was very pleased to join her in making Jesus my friend and my Lord and Savior. And uh, I'm not sure she ever knew I listened to her prayers. I never told her. (laughs) What a fantastic story. It reminds us, doesn't it, that even in our everyday lives, whatever we're doing, God can use those small things for his glory in great ways. Because look at what he's done uh, with the prayers of Maud. Uh, in the life of Martin Mins and through you to the lives of so many other people. I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible thing. When you were ordained, Bishop Martin, um, and began uh, in ordained ministry, what, what were the challenges in ordained ministry then, and what are they now? Are they different? Are they the same? Well, the fundamental challenge is the same, is to remain faithful to the Word of God and uh, faithful in our witness. And I think that was true then. And it's true today. I think the world has changed uh, somewhat. I do believe that in this country, at least, um, Christian values, Christian convictions are under greater stress and and pressure and challenge. Uh, But I think the fundamental problem for all of us is to stay true, is to stay true to what we promise, to stay true to the Word of God, uh, and to listen to the Spirit of God. So in that thing, things don't change. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? I mean, the Lord requires that level of faithfulness from all of us, whatever generation we're in, whatever the circumstances, personal, professional, national, global, uh, remaining faithful uh, to Jesus Christ. Take us a little bit on your journey as an Anglican bishop. Uh, You were elected and consecrated as a bishop in the Church of Nigeria, Anglican Communion, uh, and uh, you believed that we needed a new North American province Um, Some people are familiar with that journey. How do you end up being, it's my own story as well, elected and consecrated a bishop in Nigeria, yet serving out your episcopacy or your ordained ministry uh, in the United States? 
Well, to say it was a surprise is to understate it. Um, I was working as the rector of Truro Church in Fairfax, Virginia, and very much engaged in Truro's vision for international ministry and mission. And so I was involved in a variety of initiatives, including working with Archbishop Peter Akinola, who at that time was the primate of the Church of Nigeria. And he, he had a profound concern for many of the Nigerian parishes in the United States as the Episcopal Church moved further and further away from traditional teaching. And he felt concerned for them. He felt concerned that they would receive good pastoral care and, uh, and support. And so I worked with him to create a structure. Uh, we called it a convocation, uh, taking our model, I think, from the Convocation of Anglican Churches in Europe, uh, where it was not obviously geographically connected, but in a region where there were congregations who were somewhat isolated who need, needed to be connected and with pastoral care. But hang on a second, Bishop. So you're, you're telling me you're elected a bishop in Nigeria uh, through the incredible ministry of that wonderful man you and I have had the, both have the privilege of working with Archbishop Akinola. Uh, and yet your ministry is in North America. Some people say that's not quite the way we do things as Anglicans, right? We're, we're, we're a little bit more ordered, by the way. There, there was already a province here. Uh, did that sort of thing come up? Well, not really, because I do think if you look around the Anglican world, there's a number of creative structures where pastoral care, I mean, for example, the what I mentioned, the Episcopal Church actually has a convocation yep. in Europe, uh, while there are a number of dioceses already pre-existing. Uh, so it's not without precedent, uh, and and I think that was part of the thinking behind Archbishop Akinola's creativity. But initially, it was meant to be a convocation, simply a way in which these churches could function together. But quickly it became clear that uh, Episcopal care was also needed. And to keep flying Archbishop Akinola in from Nigeria every time there was a need uh, was clearly impractical. So the House of Bishops in Nigeria met, and as is their custom, they waited on the spirit. And then without, frankly, any forewarning, uh, a call was issued to me uh, to be uh, made a bishop. Uh, I actually received the phone call while driving from uh, Richmond, Virginia, to uh, home. And uh, I do remember the day when Archbishop Akinola called me and said that I had been elected. And what was my response? <laughs> uh, put you on speakerphone so the whole House of Bishops can hear you. And my response was, first of all, to, to say how honored I was by such an election, uh, but that I would need to pray. And Akinola, with his traditional move and along mode, said, well, pray quickly. <laughs> uh, so Angela and I, my wife Angela and I prayed, and we invited the Vestry of Truro Church to join me in those prayers uh, to discern whether indeed this was of God uh, and whether we should move into this uh, new call. And we quickly discerned indeed it was. Although Archbishop Akinola warned me that indeed it was a, a very... Uh, innovative move and that there was no funding for it. There was no house, no car, no salary, no nothing. Uh, but he believed that if God was in it, uh, God indeed would provide. So we stepped out in faith and it was not too many weeks before I was in Abuja uh, going through a week of discernment, final discernment and preparation under the gracious care of Archbishop Nicholas Oko. So I got to meet both of those great men uh, very early in my uh, 
Episcopal. Uh, it all life. sounds very missionary. And you and I have talked over the years so much on how the church must always remember she is missionary. She's been called to a mission to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. We must always see ourselves as missionary. And as part of that missionary movement that you came to lead, that the Lord called you to lead, was also to see the foundation and establishment of a new Anglican province uh, in North America. Uh, ACNA, the Anglican Church in North America, is now 10 years old. Uh, you were there at the very beginning. In fact, you were there before the beginning. Uh, you were a founder. What's significant about the work that's going on in the Anglican Church in North America today? Or perhaps more, more correctly, is it still significant? I think it's wonderfully significant. And I think uh, it, it continues, in my mind, to reflect this missionary heritage, which is always slightly... Uh, destabilizing because we don't have all the traditional structures that we're used to in the kind of Anglican way. And so being a missionary means often uh, stepping out um, without really knowing where God will provide. And I think that I'm very much indebted to people like Archbishop Foley Beach and others who have stepped out into places where unless God comes through, uh, indeed, uh, there will not be much of a, of a forward uh, movement. So I'm thrilled with what's happening. I do think um, there will always be a, a temptation to slide back into traditional ruts and, and grooves, things that are familiar, uh, and it's hard work to stay in the missionary mode, but it's essential, and I'm grateful to see so many are doing Yeah, there's often that. this thought uh, that um, because the Anglican Church in North America was established as this missionary movement, that it's not quite Anglican. And yet I remember uh, uh, 2005, you, you were um, instrumental in some of this. The Church of Nigeria really defined for us what being Anglican is. And she talked in terms of being in communion with those who uphold the, and I'm, I'm quoting here, the historic faith, doctrine, sacrament, and discipline of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I've always thought that's a fantastic way to describe actually what Anglicanism is. It's not so much about Canterbury, although the Sea of Canterbury is important in Anglicanism, it is about upholding and maintaining the historic faith. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, I want to go back a moment because uh, if you look at where the Anglican Church is growing around the world, it is indeed in those places that have taken the missionary course seriously um, in the global south. And, of course, as we think about that, much of that was a result of missionaries being sent out from the initial, initially Church of England uh, to create such structures. And so I think I would argue that, indeed, a missionary mindset and a missionary movement is at the heart of Anglicanism. And I think that, that when we move away from that, when we become enamored with the establishment and with structure, uh, then in fact we are abandoning the heart of, of the Anglican And we saw way. that, Bishop, didn't we, with the Church Missionary uh, Society uh, and other societies within Anglicanism that did such great work uh, sharing the gospel to Africa, uh, to the Caribbean, here in North America, my own journey back in New Zealand, the foundations of the gospel coming through the Anglican Church and the Church Missionary Society. Uh, what you're saying reminds us of that very missionary nature of our call. Indeed. And I think there's always a temptation to go into structural uh, safety rather than and moving out into sort of the adventure of mission. 
uh, it's always a tension, uh, and yet I think it's one that we always need to move forward and to take the risk. So if you've just joined us, uh, this is Living Through the Word. I'm speaking with Bishop Martin Mims, the founding missionary bishop of the Convocation of Anglicans in North America, a great personal friend and mentor uh, and support uh, to Brenda and to me. Um, so, Bishop, just just thinking about the, the Anglican Church in North America uh, and that statement from the Church of Nigeria when she changed her constitution in 2005, some people say, well, ACNA's not quite Anglican. What say you? Well, uh, from my point of view, it is thoroughly Anglican and that it satisfies all the criteria that that statement from the Church of Nigeria listed. And so I'm quite happy with it um, continuing on to, uh, to bear witness uh, within the Anglican tradition. And I'm delighted to see so many friends are part of it. Now, Bishop Martin, um, you were ordained after many years of uh, ministry through a different career. You had a career at one time with mobile oil. Uh, Why would someone want to be ordained today when many congregations struggle to pay the salary of their pastors? Might they not think it might be better for me to engage in something else for the security of my family? Well, that was a very real um, struggle for me uh, because I had grown up, as I mentioned earlier, in Nottingham. Uh, we were we knew what it was like to be poor, uh, and I had no desire to go back to that. And I was living at that point in Darien, Connecticut, uh, the opposite of poverty, a town with great privilege, and we were enjoying uh, many of the things that were available to us. We had four children, all of whom were involved in all kinds of after-school activities, uh, which we thoroughly enjoyed. And it was a great place to be blessed. We're part of a lively church, and all things were going well. Uh, And yet we had this sense of call uh, that began to make itself real in my own life. Uh, I can tell you more about that if you have time. But let me simply say that part of my struggle uh, was indeed I did not want to uh, find myself in a place where I was unable to support my own family. And so I agonized about that while I was still working for mobile. And I remember taking walks at lunchtime in Manhattan and just arguing with the Lord about this sense, this call that was becoming more and more clear, and yet my fear uh, of being unable to provide for my family. And finally, Angela, my wife, uh, said to me, how come you can trust God for your salvation, but you can't trust God for our provision? Uh, which is one of those awesome questions that wives occasionally ask. There is no answer whatsoever, except... Well, uh, one thing I know about the uh, great privilege of knowing your wife, Angela, is that she speaks truth. She does it carefully and lovingly, but she always speaks truth, and that was one of those moments, quite clearly. So, in fact, when we we had a group of people at St. Paul's in Darien who surrounded us with their prayers... And they prayed that God would provide for us. Uh, Some gave. um, And uh, as we prepared to head to Virginia Seminary, I still remember the day I got a phone call from the man who had offered to serve as treasurer for our group. He said, I cannot understand it. No one knows how much you need except me. And the exact amount that you need for three years of seminary has been pledged or given as of today. And that was the very day that we were driving down I-95 heading for Virginia. And for him, it was one of those profound converting moments of seeing the hand of God working in an unmistakable way. And indeed, we experienced that provision for all three years. 
Uh, we didn't live well. We McDonald's was a great treat, which we only occasionally were able to afford. But we lived uh, debt-free. Uh, we left seminary and able to begin ministry, uh, looking back upon those years with great affection. So God indeed came through. And it was there were days when we wondered, and we have many stories of God providing for us in, uh, in small and yet wonderful ways. And uh, yet we saw the hand of God providing for us. And so God indeed can be trusted. And I'll say that to anyone today. Um, it's not about economics. It's about faithfulness to God's call. God is able to provide uh, for those who trust him and who are called. Uh, and as that serve. great hymn reminds us, Bishop Martin, and, 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 and I know it's a hymn that you enjoy worshiping God, and great is thy faithfulness morning by morning, new mercies I see, all I have needed, your hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, uh, Lord, unto me. Let me yep. tell you a story, Julian, about one of those moments. It's a kind of a delightful little story. We were serving at a parish in Haymarket, Virginia, St. Paul's Haymarket. And I remember driving out there one winter morning uh, with our children in the back of the station wagon. And our son John at that point was uh, only, five, I think, four or five. And he had sprouted up and was no longer his, uh, he had no winter pants. He was still wearing short summer pants. And he was complaining that his legs were cold, he was cold, and he was miserable. And um, I was in the front driving along, and it really got to me. I really kind of dug into my mind and heart, thinking, how can I be doing this? How should I be making my own children? So I can't even clothe my own children. And so I spent the day uh, doing my activities, but un underneath I was kind of grumbling and complaining to God that this was simply not right. And that complaining took me all the way back home. We got home after dark, and uh, I, as I went to open the door in our home in Alexandria, there was a large black garbage bag right in front of the front door. And I, of course, immediately assumed and accused the children of leaving the garbage at the wrong place. They all protested it wasn't them. We put the light on, opened the bag. Inside, it was full of little boys' uh -huh. long pants, all John size. And I was absolutely stunned. How could anyone have known? I finally figured out that a neighbor down the street who got uh, children a little bit older than ours had been going through a closet and had decided to give us a gift of little boy's long pants. She had no way of knowing about my agony of the day or of John's complaining. Uh, she was simply doing what she felt prompted to do. And it was a tiny thing in some ways, but it was a huge thing in others. And I look back upon that moment uh, with great fondness. It was one of those small but huge for us uh, tokens yes, of God's Yes, or see, there you go again. All, all I have needed, thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Amen. Bishop Martin, I know that you uh, continue to believe in ongoing education, exercising our minds. Um, two books you would encourage people to read. Uh, uh, what might they be? Well, obviously, I would hope people will be reading the Bible. Um, and I assume you meant that in addition to the Bible, but uh, we need to be careful that we don't always put the Bible to one side. Uh, it would be hard for me to decide in terms of knowing the person who's asking the question. So let me offer a couple of authors. Tim Keller is a dear friend. Uh, we work together in New York City. He writes very uh, 
clear um, and biblically grounded text, and I would encourage anything by Tim is always a good read. Uh, Tom Wright, um, uh, former Bishop of Durham in England, is also a good writer, and I find his work always um, challenging and insightful. Uh, there's another book that I've just, uh, another one, two more books, uh, if you'll forgive me. Uh, one I came across a little while ago, my son John, who's now, by the way, um, an ordained minister and uh, rector of a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, but John recommended a book to me some years ago that he found most helpful called No Perfect People Allowed uh, by a man called John Burke. And it's really focusing on how to build a church that is not simply built on transfer growth, but on uh, conversion growth and how that that needs to be a very intentional way of thinking about growing church. So no perfect people allowed uh, by John Burke. And then if you'll forgive me one more little book, actually not so little, but a book that's been on my heart recently that my daughter Sarah recommended, and it's called Being Mortal by a Dr. Atul Gawande. He is a Harvard um, professor, uh, and it's really challenging us to think about how we think about life, and death and uh, end of life issues. And it's not written from a direct, from a Christian viewpoint, but it's written from a very thoughtful uh, medical viewpoint, which I found most helpful. And so I would commend it um, as being a, a good read and well worth reading. So Being Mortal uh, by Anna Atul, A-T-U-L, Gawande, G-A-W-A-N-D-E. So I'm sorry I went by beyond my allowance, <laughs> but I've given you two authors Bishop Martin, it's just been so great having you on this inaugural uh, uh, presentation of this Living Through the Word podcast. Uh, so great to uh, have you share some of your thoughts with us. We hope we'll have you back again. Um, is, is the good news about Jesus, is it still good news today? I think it's better news today than it's ever been. Uh, I think that people are asking very uh, Deep questions about life, and and I think that the the, the truth of Jesus and uh, the faith that He calls us to uh, is is never been more necessary. Um, I'm delighted, by the way, to see the world is is struggling to find answers to important questions. I am saddened that we're not able to direct them as well as we might uh, to the uh, unfailing Word of God uh, that indeed is the gift that we have to give to the world. And I do believe that we need to do a better job of thinking and speaking theologically to engage with these difficult issues. I mean, people are asking questions about the nature of family, the nature of male and female. All these things are questions that are important questions, and yet we have great news to speak that comes from the Word of God. And so I believe that it's great news. It sets people free, and it gives them hope it's well, Bishop, thank you so much for joining us on this episode and sharing with us. Uh, I commend you to the Word of God and to the Word of His grace. I'm Julian Dobbs, and this is Living Through the Word, the podcast of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. We hope to be back with you uh, week by week, uh, bringing you new episodes of this podcast. We're going to be talking to Henry Jansma about summer reading and some things that you might consider reading. 
We'll be uh, talking to Dr. Jim Saladin uh, later on in the episodes where I, I'm going to explore with him why and when is it right? When is biblical cause to separate ourselves from one another and when is it not? We'll think about right to life issues, but we'll do so from looking at God's word and the very good news that we've heard about today. God bless you.